Christ Presbyterian Church is a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Visit us for morning or evening worship in Mobile, Alabama, or on the web at cpcmobile.com. Let's go to Matthew chapter 21, which is our sermon text this morning. Matthew 21, we've been in Matthew for months at this point, probably going on a year. Matthew chapter 21, this is the word of the Lord. If you please stand in honor of the reading and the preaching of God's word, let us stand together and we will read Matthew 21 verses 1 through 17. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. That would be Zechariah saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went on before him, and and those that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were in And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you ever, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the reading of God's word for this morning. Let us look to him in prayer. Lord, send now your Holy Spirit to stir us up, to have a true and honest view of our King, our Messiah, our Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our friend, that we might know him and be known by him, that we might make much of who he really is, and that we might put to death all the imaginations of our hearts. Hear us, let us walk after you truly. Let your bride be endeared and fawn over our King and Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our text 
Our topic this morning is the triumphal entry of Jesus. You know, it's kind of interesting. Our text has actually changed a little bit. I don't know if you've seen this over the course of the book of Matthew. There are episodes where there's a lot of action that's happening. Jesus is doing a lot of things, and that's followed up by two or three chapters of, of teaching, teaching on the kingdom, teaching on how the kingdom is supposed to be run. We've been in chapters of teaching over the last three chapters, where Jesus has been preparing the church for his departure, and then he has been preparing them how to run the church after he leaves. But now we're in a chapter of action. There's a lot less talking. The focus is on who Jesus is and what he is doing. And since Peter's confession and on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus has been pointing his face to Jerusalem. He's gone from Hermon to Capernaum to Judea to Jericho, and now he's right outside of Jerusalem, kind of on the eastern side of Jerusalem, in Bethphage. And while that's where our text starts, that is not where our text ends. Because the Messiah has come to Jerusalem. The king has come home. The Messiah has come to his city. And the one who is the son of God has come to the city of God. And what is described here in our text is called the triumphal entry. That is the messianic uh, entry of the king of kings. Of the Messiah himself. The king of Judah coming to his capital, Jerusalem. But it's filled with both glory and rank disbelief. It is filled with cleansing and hatred of their Messiah. Not just because of who he is, but because of what he does. So our main point this morning is going to be that Jesus, the humble, true king of Israel, comes to, cleanses, and then is rejected by Israel, his own people. And we're going to look at this under three headings, the humble king, his identity, and then thirdly, his hatred. Firstly, the humble king comes to Jerusalem. So they've left Jericho and we're... And, and we're Kind of on, uh, which is where they were at the end of the last chapter. And now they are in the region surrounding Jerusalem. In fact, Bethphage is a uh, smaller town kind of on the way up to Zion. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, this, this places them near a very well-known site. To the Mount of Olives, this is a place of Prophecy. This is also a place where there are references to apocalyptic events. You can imagine Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives looking towards Jerusalem. Knowing how many times he's called to his people. Knowing precisely what he is about to do. That he will enact salvation through a bloody atonement and glorify his father in his righteousness. That time has now come. Then Jesus sent two disciples, verse 2, saying to them, go into the village in front of you. Now that village is not Bethphage, that village is Bethany. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, okay? 
Nothing all that surprising there. He's not doing a miracle or appealing to his deity. I've seen some commentators say, how could he have possibly have known that? Like, how could he have possibly have known that they were basic common animals in a small town? Um, it seems obvious that, that he might actually in general know that. This is not a miracle. He's not exercising his, his all-knowingness. These are common animals tied up in a, in a Jewish town. But he says, untie them, it's a bit strange, and bring them to me. That's also strange. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, are, are they even yours, Jesus? Um, is he commandeering them? Some might say stealing. No, he is not stealing them. First, we have no clue what prior arrangements Jesus could have made. Second, uh, does not the king of the Jews have rights over his people? And then thirdly, does not the living and true God own all things, including the owner of these animals and the animals themselves? Yes, is the answer. More than that, we don't know even whose they could be. For instance, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha live in Bethany. They may very well be theirs. Disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. If anyone says to you, because, you know, that would be understandable. Hey, you're not from the town around here. What are you doing with those beasts that are, you know, from here? We know those. How will they procure them? You shall say, the Lord needs them. Okay. Okay. Now, the average person might not buy that argument or that, that claim. I'm not really sure how that would work. I'm, I'm not sure that Lucas Mick will, will buy my borrowing his car for an unspecified, uh, unspecified amount of time with the reason of, the Lord needs it, brother. Your white chariot, he needs it. <laughs> what? What is this? But again, if, they are the, if they're Lazarus' property, he might as well have said, because Jesus, the Lord, needs them. And he would have known immediately. And Lazarus would have known too. And he will send them at once. He will obey. He'll understand. It's, I'll be honest, it's kind of refreshing to see Jews who are actually knowledgeable of and obedient to and like Jesus and his ministry. We've been in 21 chapters of Matthew and we've rarely seen it. They understand his messianic agenda and support him. It's been rare to see that so far. But the question is, is why is this even happening? This took place, verse 4, not because Jesus was finally tired of 33 years of walking around in sandals and he just needed to rest his weary feet. No. But as the Messiah, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. I don't know if you've ever read through the book of Zechariah. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. This reference comes from Zechariah 9.9. 9. The first six chapters of Zechariah are about the eight night visions. Israel has returned from exile, from the Babylonian exile. They are wounded. They are suffering. And their enemies are all quiet, resting like fat cats, kind of just soaking up the sun. So in the first six chapters, he gives vision after vision of how Yahweh will defeat all his and our enemies, how he will protect and indwell and restore his people. 
But he is prophesying this at the end of the Old Testament. Soon after Zechariah even delivers his letters and his oracles, God is silent for nearly 400 years. The question would then be, when does that happen? When does that occur? Where's the restoration? Where's the victory? Where's the Messiah who would bring all of this about? And then in chapter 9, the Lord of glory, the Messiah, is prophesied to personally come to Jerusalem. He will arrive. He will incarnate. But he will not come in pomp and circumstance. He will not come in gold and in laurels. He will not come in self-congratulatory love. But humbly. On a donkey. Oh, come on. No, 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 no. Jesus, you need ivory and gold chariots. You need roses falling from the walls of Jerusalem. You need your people's love. Right? No. No, he doesn't, actually. I think we oftentimes fail to misunderstand something. The fanfare that Jesus desires, he already has. He already has it because his father has already said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The coronation glory isn't when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, but when he arrives to the accolades and cheering of heaven, and when he sits down at the right hand of his father to his confirmation and proclamation cosmically. Because he has and will have the Father's glory, the Father's affirmation, he doesn't need our pomp. He doesn't need our celebration. He doesn't need our circumstance. He can be truly the king who comes humbly as the sin bearer, lowly, on a mere beast of burden. Now, this is Matthew's explanation of this to us. This is not what he actually said to them at the time. This wasn't to the disciples and what they heard. They just heard Jesus' command and, verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, and put, on, put on them their cloaks and he then sat on them. So the king has left glory incarnated to take your sin upon himself. He's humbled, he's lowly, and we are to behold one primary thing here. Your lowly king, who's come to represent you in your sinfulness, though he is perfectly righteous. Here is your Messiah. Look at how far down he goes. He's riding on a donkey. But, beloved, he would still go much further. All the way to the depths of a tomb. To being brought under the state of death for you. Here's your humble king as he comes to Jerusalem. And who is this humble king? Jesus. This is our second point. Jesus is the humble king of Israel. Now he enters in Jerusalem. Now, contrary to Jesus' humility and identity, the people want fanfare. They want glory. They want celebration. And instead of recognizing the lowliness of his entrance, verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Think of old 
older chivalry of a man who would put his, put his cloak down so that a woman could walk across it in order to not get her feet wet in a puddle. This was in recognition of his being greater than they. And yes, it's true. As God, that's, that's accurate. As Messiah, that's true. And as perfectly moral man, that's true. But Jesus has already declared that he has come not to be served, but to serve. He's come to bear their sin. And therefore, he's come to be humbled below them. Not walking on the clothes of peons, for instance. Jesus doesn't want to be a Jehu who accepted his servants laying down their cloaks on the steps of the palace for him. Jesus doesn't want to be a Caesar decked in a toga, rolling, in, rolling through the city in a chariot through the vanguard of royals, military, and his adoring, applauding people. Instead, he's come as the suffering servant. His glory is not on this side of the cross. It's on the other side of the cross. But still others still misunderstood his entrance, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So first of all, this is, these are palm trees. First of all, it's not the time for the Feast of Booths where these branches would be brought out. So palms weren't necessary. Secondly, palms were used to signify victory. Not just their being brought out of Canaan through the Exodus, but their victory over their foes, which has also happened through the Exodus. But that means that the Jews were focused on Jesus coming as a possible overthrower. Of who? Well, certainly not of the Jews, as they would think. He came as a possible overthrower to the one occupier of Jerusalem, of Rome. Not against their sin. They want an insurrection. That's rebellion. It's treason against Rome. That's not why Jesus came. By contrast, Jesus will rule over the nations after he sits coronated at the right hand of God. Not now. He's not a military commander. He's not the, the leader of a coup. He's come to remove your guilt. He's come to free you from the tyranny of sin. He's come to end your rebellion against the Father and crush the head of the serpent, not liberate Jerusalem from Roman rule. So Jesus is seated on the donkey, entering under the gates of Jerusalem. Verse 9, and the crowds that went before him and that were following him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. So they do celebrate him using a messianic title. <clears throat> but they just have all the wrong ideas of what the Messiah is and does. Or what he will do. This is the reason why Jesus has not used the, the title of Messiah to describe himself yet. Because of all the, all the differing views of what that would actually mean and entail. Uh, he knows they have a militaristic understanding of the Messiah. They are celebrating and imputing to him wrong ideas. A false theology. If we're looking at the commandments, there's a commandment that this violates. They are taking the Lord's name in vain. They attribute wrong understandings to the messianic title, the son of David. The question is, is do you do that? Have we ever done that? Lord, if you're, if you're really the Messiah, you'll get me out of this situation over here. No? I'm, 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 the, I'm the only one who's been influenced by 
broad evangelical thinking about I get to use the Messiah, I get to use God in order to get what I want and not suffer some of the consequences of my actions. Lord, if you're, if you're really God, you'll just give me X. In this case, X is freedom from Roman rule. That assumes Jesus' Messiahship functions to remove the consequences of my sin. And that assumes that God, as your God, likes being treated as a little pocket genie for you, a little cosmic pocket genie for you to call upon and make three wishes. That is to devolve him. That is to devalue him. That is to defame him. That is not who he is. Hosanna is the prescription of praise and glory. So they are not wishing, so they are wishing him blessing, prosperity, success, health, and shalom. But get the Romans. They're declaring Jesus is the one sent by Yahweh to do this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But it's all towards a false view of Jesus. And when he entered Jerusalem, verse 10, the whole city was stirred up saying, who, who is this? Everyone comes out of their homes and work to see what the hullabaloo is all about. All this commotion. Who, who's it about? Someone asks. And the crowd says, verse 11, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Hmm. Wait, 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 what? Now, we've already seen that in our evening services and in our evening series that Jesus is the great prophet of Deuteronomy 18.18. He is the highest, he is is the prophet of God. But that does not seem to be what the the crowds mean. They seem to mean that he is a northern tribe's prophet. In the prior text, it seemed clear that the, the blind men calling Jesus the son of David, namely, namely blind Bartimaeus, they were using it as a messianic title. But, the, but here, the contrast here is just too strange. He comes humbly, but they spring for fanfare. He comes as the prophet, priest, and king, but they call him prophet of the northern tribes. He comes to die for sin. They want him to out the Romans. Do they have an accurate view of their Messiah. Wait, it should cause us all to ask and pause, hmm, do I do that too? Do I worship my view of Jesus or do I worship the biblical Jesus? Am I worshiping my own imagination about Jesus or am I actually worshiping if I'm worshiping my own imagination about Jesus, aren't I, by definition, just worshiping myself? Does my God want me to have a false view of Christ, of myself, of his work, and his relationship to me? Maybe, just maybe. Our false views of God and Jesus is why Jesus is actually entering into Jerusalem at all. To die for them. To correct them. To perfect for us. To be perfect for us in identifying himself and the Father. And to be resurrected so that we, through him, might be washed by the Spirit with a right understanding of Christ. Is that possibly the reason why he's actually there? 
So Jesus is this humble king of Israel. But this will not do. Israel quickly turns on him. Take a look at, uh, this, is our third, this is our third point here. Israel hates her humble king. Notice the first thing that he does. He enters into Jerusalem and he goes straight to the temple of God. His own house. Whereas God and Messiah, he alone has the right to order, cleanse, and reform his worship. Verse 12. And he entered the temple. As God, it's his as prophet, he can call Israel to repent of their sins in abusing the temple. As, uh, as priest, he is sacrifice, and he is the high priest. As king, what he legislates goes. But he didn't go to the palace, did he? He didn't go and rebuke the king. He didn't go to the synagogue. He went straight to the temple where in the Old Testament his Shekinah glory was manifest. He has every right to be there. But more than that, remember the function of John the Baptist for Jesus, because this is really important. We cited Malachi chapter 3 at the beginning of this book. Remember, John the Baptist was Jesus' forerunner. Jesus was the messenger of the new covenant. But what did the Messiah come to do? Malachi 3, 1 through 3 tells us this. Behold, I, that is the Lord, send my messenger. Who's that? That's John. And he, John, will prepare the way before me. That would be the Lord. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. Oh, good news. He's coming. Where? Where will he show up? He will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, saying, uh, uh, he, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, that is, the in, that is, he is incarnating to come to you personally at the temple. God will show up at his own place of worship. And you might think, oh, this is awesome news. He's going to come. But that's not how Malachi puts it. Verse 2. But... Who can endure that day? Who can endure the day of his coming? Wait, wait, wait. So, so, so you mean this isn't good news? No, no, no. It's good news. But it's not, for, it's not good news for those in rebellion to him. We are all great sinners. And who can stand in his presence when he appears? No one. No one will endure it. No one will be so bold to take a, a posture of pride and arrogance when the Lord of glory comes to his own temple. For, here's why, he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi. Wait, wait, wait. You mean the same people who were over the temple in Jerusalem when Jesus walks in? Those people? The ones who are supposed to be leading in worship, leading in the sacrifices? Those people? Those who oversee what happens there and, and actually what the scene's supposed to even look like? Yes, them. And he will refine them like gold and silver. And then they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So Jesus arrives at his temple and, and, and basically what's functionally an end time event that shatters social and cultural convention, but not God's word. 
It fulfills God's word. Yahweh has returned and he will reform his temple worship back to righteousness. Where did Jesus start? He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. You take my house and defile it by literally turning parts of it into a marketplace. The sacrifices in the temple don't exist for you to strike deals and barter and make a buck on people. The temple and the sacrifices exist because they were the clearest display of the gospel in the Old Testament. And Jesus is zealous for his worship and for his gospel. Because it is the display of substitutionary atonement. My sin imputed to my substitute, it's spotlessness imputed to me, and me being right again before the eyes of God. And you're making a buck off of it. You're not cutting even right deals for people who are coming needy, seeing their sinfulness, and all you think of is, how can we make a deal? How can I make money off of your guilt? Please do tell, where in the Old Covenant did it tell you to turn part of my worship, part of my temple, into a marketplace? Nowhere. It's unholy. It's unclean. And no one saw it that way. No priest, no Levite, no high priest. No one concluded that it was problematic. Can you imagine? Yeah, I'm going to say this. Can you imagine turning the entire foyer into brand CPC station? Where we get to sell CPC shirts, where we get to print pictures of preacher Josh. Ha! and put them on shirts. We get to sell decals and stickers. We're going to do everything. Mugs, all right? We're going to, we're going to turn it into a, a reformed workshop. Money, cards, merch, flying all around. You'd rightly say, what does any of that have to do with the worship of God? Jesus answers. <laughs> Here's his answer. It's not words. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. His answer is righteous anger and zeal for his father's house. You know, how does that really jive today with the modern evangelical church who loves a gentle Jesus who then manifests itself in this scenario as a flipper of tables. I'm sure many of them would pretend to be more righteous and in their pretended wisdom would judge him as sinning here. I would never do that. (laughs) Something like that. But there is a righteousness in Jesus' anger. He cleanses the temple of the deal makers. Can you imagine Jesus angry? Zealous, animated, tossing chairs around, making a whip of cords, flipping over tables, chasing people off, um, uh, coins clattering to the ground, animals running. Can you imagine it? But there is something else Jesus is focused on. Imagine Jesus walked into a church. Let's say uh, it's, it's July 4th. Let's say it's July 4th. And he rips down the American flag from his sanctuary. 
spit out some of our awesome sauce special brew coffee that we think is so great. And what made him the most mad were that people were selling reformed merch in the foyer and they were the offices of the church selling, swindling the people to pay more for sacrifices and for atonement. All of this soils and mars the Old Testament gospel. In fact, it's soiled by the very ones who are commissioned and anointed to protect it. Jesus just simply was not going to have it. It's one thing that we, it's, it's, it's the one thing that we are called to actually defend and keep pure and protect. That is, the, the message of the gospel in the means in which he has given to us. If I'm not preaching the gospel, if I'm not preaching Jesus' substitutionary life, death, and resurrection, Jesus imparting new creation power to sinners to live a holy life, you have every right to be angry about that. Every right. That's the call. That's that's the whole purpose. If we're not going to do that one thing, what are we here for? But no, we want to make money off of it. We have to extend our brand. Instead of making some people pay a fair price for their atonement from sin. Which Jesus says over and over again to us. That it doesn't come because you purchased it. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. They're swindling God's people out of the blessings that God has bequeathed to them. The mercies of God are free off of, basically are free because of God's own choice to display them. So apparently some knew Jesus had gone to the temple. They were those sensible of their neediness, verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. Excellent timing. Jesus didn't charge them five bucks for healing. He didn't charge ten bucks for a sermon. He didn't charge a hundred bucks for a two-by-two red anointing cloth. That's not what he did. The point of God's grace is that it is free from him to you. Jesus came to die and live for us to enact a free salvation. And this they have spoiled. And as the Messiah and as the king, he is coming in and he is cleansing his own temple. He will not have his people twisting the purity of the Old Testament gospel. Instead, he will bring kingdom graces. And he healed them. Verse 14. But in contrast to Jesus cleansing his temple and reestablishing a grace-based ministry, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. Now, the wonderful is not an attribution of how they were describing them. Okay, These guys don't think it's so wonderful that Jesus just did this. The wonder there is a biblical word for signs and wonders. That is, he is doing things that are cataclysmic, apocalyptic. They are big picture things. Including his, his, his healing people. So that does not mean that they found them wonderful. It means that they are wonders. And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They weren't filled with such warm fuzzies. They were warm with anger. <laughs> they were indignant. 
Can you imagine that? The Messiah coming to his own house and any officer, anyone has the right, thinks that they have the right to be angry back at the Messiah for cleansing his temple. This implies that we all get it wrong, that we haven't maintained this gospel and the temple, that we aren't rightly representing Jesus. Jesus is threatening their status in the kingdom, and they are angry, filled with hatred at their own Messiah. Verse 16, and they said to him, do you hear what these people are saying? Some of them were praising God, praising you as if you are God and as if you're the Messiah. Don't you know that you're not? Therefore, tell them to stop. This is immoral. It's blasphemy. God set us up to run this place, not you. Stop leading the people astray, Jesus. You're wrong. And Jesus said to them, do I hear what these people are saying? Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and babes? You have ordained praise. Jesus is not getting praise for cleansing the temple. He's not, he's not in, interested in false views of his messiahship. He's literally here to restore his people from their sin to a right worship of God. And you want for me to apologize for that? Never. Verse 17. So he just left. Leaving there, he went out to the city of Bethany and lodged there. So apparently he decided to return that colt and that horse, or that, that colt and its foal, back to Bethany. But the leaders of Israel hated him. It never dawned on the Israelite leadership that the pagans from which Israel needed cleansing was themselves. But when our sins, our idols, our pride are hurt by Jesus, by his word, by his holiness, hatred erupts out of our hearts. That rebellion, that hard heart, is precisely what Jesus came to die for and to kill in you. He came to die for the church's wrong views of him. He came to die so you'd have a right view of him. The question that we all have to ask is, do you need a restored view of your humble king come to cleanse, not so that you might hate him, but so that you might really and truly rejoice in his atoning work?